Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. The year was 1969. Star Los Angeles Dodger pitcher Don Sutton, he's now a member of the Hall of Fame, but that year was a bad year, at least so far. He hadn't won a game in eight weeks. It was just loss after loss after loss. And and the press was getting critical, and they would refer to him as a loser. And they suggested that he be benched or maybe even replaced altogether. So the future looked bleak, and Sutton felt terrible. And then one day before a game, the manager of the Dodgers, Walter Alston, tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Uh, I'd like to speak with you, Don. And so Sutton prepared himself for the worst. Don said, Alston, I know how the past couple of months have been for you. Everyone's wondering whether we can make the playoffs this year. And you know there's a lot of pressure. And I've had to make a decision. Sutton then thought, oh no, here it is, it's coming now, I'm being benched or maybe even sent to the minors. And Alston continued and said, if the Dodgers are going to win this year, they're going to win with Don Sutton pitching. Come what may, you're my pitcher, that's all I wanted to say, Don, you're it. Two weeks later, Sutton broke his eight, his, his, uh, losing streak, and the rest of August and through September, he won 13 of 14 games. Now, in light of those words, that story, consider the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, where at verse 13 through 16. Now, this scripture follows what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. Pastor Andy preached a great message to us last week. And if you didn't hear it, you can still catch it online. When he spelled out the eight supernatural traits of Jesus' followers. And and the truth is, as we develop those traits that he mentioned last week, we get saltier and our light gets brighter. So here we now, here are we now in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13 And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. And then he went on and Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus is saying to his hearers, On that day, you're it. You are the salt of the earth. You are 
the light of the world. Now, he spoke those words on this day to a crowd of people, a group of people that the culture of Jesus' day would have considered them, certainly would have considered them losers. This crowd around him on that day, here was a a motley crew of farmers and fishermen and tax collectors and, and housewives and children, all from tiny villages in an obscure part of the world, and Jesus is saying to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It must have sounded absurd even to them. But Jesus looked at this bunch and he saw the core of his followers. On that day, Jesus saw the ones who would change the world forever, and they did. He said to them, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so they were. You know something else? So are you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're it. Now both salt and light were highly valued back in the first century. You know what a jingle is? Of course you do. The jingles don't seem to be as popular today as they were a few years ago. But a jingle is simply an advertising slogan usually set to a tune, a melody. And one of the most likable and perhaps memorable and still in most of our heads today because it became a great song later from 1971, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. You know it. And maybe one of the most annoying from a few years after that, 1992, there was a jingle, I feel like chicken tonight. <laughs> Remember that one. Well, the Romans, too, they, uh, they tried to make a jingle, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite work in English. But they wanted to send the message of the tremendous value of, in their culture, of salt and light. And so their jingle went like this. There's nothing more useful than sun and salt. Now, it doesn't work, does it? Not, not a great jingle for sure. You are the salt and you are the light. And so my message this morning is so simple. Here it is. I want to share with you, you are the salt, what Jesus meant when he used the term salt and what he meant. So four characteristics of salt Two characteristics of light. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's start with salt. The first thing I would say to you today about salt is simply this. Salt purifies. Now, the first century Romans thought that salt was the purest of all things. And, and, maybe, and maybe it was. But its glistening whiteness made that connection perhaps quite easy. It's white, of course. And on that day... Jesus' listeners certainly would have understood that Jesus was telling them, he was, he was stressing that his followers must be an example of purity to the people around them, to the world around them. Doesn't surprise you, I'm sure, to hear me say today that the world around us, it seems like standards are slipping, standards of honesty, truth-telling, In an ethics class in a Christian college, the professor asked the students, under what conditions 
are you willing to tell the truth? And the, and the professor was quite startled to hear their answers. For many of the, for many of the students, truth-telling was optional or simply restricted to uh, certain environments. Should one always tell the truth? And he heard them say things like, well, it depends. And shading the truth and half-truths and white lies and exaggeration. Why, everybody does that. It's no big deal. But Jesus here is saying, yes, it is a big deal. He says to you and to me, you are the salt. Jesus does call us to purity of speech. More than that, he calls us to purity of thought. And Maybe you're thinking, well, really, Pastor John, is that, is that possible? Are you serious? Purity of thought? Can, can one control their thoughts? Consider this. You can't prevent the enemy. You can't prevent Satan from planting a thought in your mind. You can't prevent that, but you can prevent the thought from lingering there. One, someone wise, put it this way, you, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep him from building a nest there. Jesus calls us to purity of thought and purity of speech, and further, he calls us to purity of conduct. Mahatma Gandhi was the man who led India to independence from Britain some 80 years ago. And he was born, raised a Hindu, practiced that religion. But as a young man, he moved to South Africa for a time. And while he was there, he encountered some Christian missionaries. They were Quakers. And he had, he had even attended some of their prayer meetings and discussed theology with them. And he was, he was asked, Gandhi was asked by the missionaries, what is the greatest hindrance, in your opinion, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in the country of India? Gandhi's response was Christians. He was saying that too many Christians aren't salty enough. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt purifies. Here's the second observation I would make about salt, and it's simply this. Salt preserves. It preserves. In the, in the ancient world, salt was the preservative. There, was, there were no freezers, of course, no refrigeration, and no ice, not in the Middle East. Never do we read of an occasion where the the disciples ever played ice hockey on Lake Galilee? No, no ice. Salt was, salt was the means of keeping things from going bad. Do you like salt fish? Any salt fish fans in the room besides me? Well, maybe a dozen of us here that enjoy salt fish. Salt fish and pork scraps, that's the dish, yes. Well, I had, I had occasionally eaten salt fish as a young man, but it, I never did quite understand how, how they prepared it. And, and, and I moved when I was young to southwest Nova Scotia, and I remember my first trip out to Sanford. Sanford would be 8 to 10 minutes drive from the town I lived in, the town of Yarmouth. It's a small fishing village. And, and I watched them salt the fish. And they did it, they had these big cement boxes, about five foot by five foot, 
and maybe four foot high. And they would start by putting water, uh, water in this, this uh, tank and then a layer of fish and then a layer of salt and then more water and then more salt and then more fish until they brought the level up almost to the top. And that whole mix in there would create what they called a brine. And they would let it soak, the fish soak in that tank for days. And then they would take it out of the brine and hang it out on lines outside to dry in the sun. Someone said, fresh fish and company both smell after three days. Well, fresh fish does for sure anyway, but salt will preserve fish indefinitely. And Jesus is saying, he's saying to his listeners and he's saying to us today, you are the salt, you are to be a preservative in the culture. Think of it this way, you, we all know that there are, sit, uh, there are certain people that in whose company it's easy to be good. And there are also certain people in whose company it's easy for standards to be relaxed. There are certain people, think of this, there are certain people in whose presence a crude Lewd story would readily be told. But there are other people to whom no one would ever dream of telling such a story in their presence. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying to us, you are the salt. So salt purifies. And the next thing I would have you notice, it, it purifies and it preserves. But salt also flavors. It gives flavor to food. Food without any salt, no salt, is tasteless and flat. And, and, and Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you, you Christ followers are to life what salt is to food. We are to give life flavor. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that many people in the world today looking at Christians think just the opposite? They think that we're missing all the fun, that we're not giving flavor. Back in the fourth century, after Emperor Constantine had made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, then there came another emp emperor to the throne. His name was Julian. And he wanted to put the clock back and to bring back the old gods, and here was his complaint at that time. He says, have you ever looked at these Christians closely, hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all? They brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. That's sad, isn't it? As Julian saw it, Christianity took the vividness out of life. No. No, Jesus says we're to give flavor to life. Supreme Court Justice in the United States of many years ago, Oliver Wendell Holmes, once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen that I knew did not look and act so much like undertakers. 
Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson once entered into his diary as if he was recording an extraordinary phenomenon. He wrote, I have been to church today and I'm not depressed. Isn't that sad? Church ought to be a joy booster. You've been here for 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Haven't you found that? A joy booster. You are, Jesus is saying you are the salt of the earth. In an in a anxiety-filled world, you are the one at peace. In a depressed world, you are the one, Jesus says, you are the one who has joy. In a flat, tasteless world, you are the one to bring flavor. Pastor Andy Stanley of that great church in Atlanta, Georgia, pastor and author, he this month has released a book. The book is titled, Not In It to Win It. And I was reading some reviews of the book, and he writes in that book, Imagine a world where unbelievers were anxious to hire, vote for, work for, work with, and live next door to Christians because of how well we treated one another and how well we treated them. Do you know what's sad about that comment? He starts it like, imagine a world. Like he's saying, it's not this way, but imagine if it were this way. Jesus is saying it should be this way. It must be this way. You are the salt of the earth. Salt purifies. Salt preserves. Salt gives flavor. And here's the fourth thing I would say to you about salt. Salt makes one thirsty. Yes, it does. I lived out in the country when I was a little kid. From when I was three till I was nine, we lived up in Perth Andover area and uh, very rural where I was. And about a half, a half a mile from the house, there was a cow pasture. And we played around the cow pasture. But if you know anything about country living, you don't play in cow pastures. There's, there's things in there that look a lot like second base, but they're not. <laughs> well, attached to the, the fence post up front where the gate was there was a block of salt. If I remember it right, I think it was blue in color. And they would attach this big block of salt to the post. And I've, I've not researched this. I'm just guessing why it was there. But the cows would come. And the cows would come and lick that block of salt. And, and I guess it made them thirsty. And then they would drink more. And I'm assuming that would make them give more milk. Well, we... Uh, that block of salt was, had a great attraction for us kids, so, oh, some of you licked it too, did you? Yes, right. Well, we, we didn't lick it where the cow licked it. I mean, there was, a big, there was a big groove in the block of salt where the cows licked it, but we would get around to the side, and we would, we would lick that thing, and it would make us thirsty. And then it was maybe 100 yards to the river, and we'd make to the river and and jump in and get a drink and swim. You see what Jesus is saying here? The truth is so simple. We ought to be making the world out there thirsty for a drink of the living water. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, you are the salt. So salt purifies, it preserves, it gives flavor, it makes one thirsty. You are the salt. Now for a few minutes, let's move over to you are the Light, you are the light of the world. And just two observations about light, so simple, so obvious, here they are. 
Light dispels the darkness. You are the light of the world, verse 14, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Light dispels darkness. Now, first century houses in, in Palestine were very dark. Probably there was only one circular window, maybe not more than 18 inches across. So the houses were dark, and, and a lamp would, would be like a, a, a little boat-shaped thing filled with oil with the wick floating on the top of it, and the primary duty of the light of the lamp was to push back the darkness. It's difficult. It's difficult to overestimate estimate the importance of light. During my uh, seminary years, we lived in Kentucky. And uh, on weekends when there was gas in the car, we'd go out and do some sightseeing. And one Saturday, we decided to go down to the southern part of the state and to check out the caves. And uh, you'd show up there and there would be a guide there that would take 12 to 15 people deep down into the earth. And we went down and there were these things, you remember your grade 9 science class, where there were these things from the cone-shaped things from the ceiling. I think you call them stalactites and then the other ones that stand on the floor, stalagmites. And as we were going uh, through these, this dark tunnel, the guide said to us, now... I'm going to turn out the lights. And I want you to, to grip the railing that's there in front of you and hold on to family members because it's going to be dark. We gripped the railing and each other, and he did turn out the light. And I've never, I've never seen such darkness. I guess that doesn't make sense, does it? I've never... I've never experienced darkness like that. All of, us, all of us have been in a room where the lights go out and you give it a minute or two and your eyes adjust and then you begin to see shapes and forms. But it's rare to be in a place where there's total darkness. It made no difference how long we waited. There was no adjusting. There was, there was no light down there. And it was, it was, the darkness was totally pushed back. It even affected our balance. That's why he told us to grab the railing because in total darkness you have no sense of balance. And then he turned on just a tiny little light, just a tiny little pen light. And every eye down deep in that cave turned towards the light. What a welcome sight that light was. I remember. So let me ask you, are you a welcome sight in this dark world? Are you? Jesus said you are the light. We're to be the light in the ordinariness of everyday life. Jesus is, our Christianity should be visible in the way we treat the, the girl at the checkout or the guy at the drive through window. It should be obvious there. It should be obvious in the way we order a meal in a restaurant, it ought to be obvious that we're light the way we tip. The way we treat our employees or your employer. The way we play a game. The way we drive. 
the things we say when our family's in the car and we're 45 minutes trying to get across that bridge. Jesus said we should be light in the everyday activities, in the daily language that we use, in the literature we read, in the Netflix movies we watch, and in the websites we visit. Jesus said you are the light. Do you notice here he didn't say you are the light of the church? We are, that too. But you, he said you are the light of the world, meaning what? That we're to let our light shine when we're out there. Let your light shine. Light dispels darkness. Here's the other thing I would have you notice about light. It shows the way. Yes, it does. The Old Testament prophets, speaking of the coming Messiah, the Christ, wrote these words. You're familiar with this verse, Christmas scripture. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You know, it's interesting. Jesus, early in his ministry, often referred to himself as the light. Late in his ministry, he, he began to say not only that he was the light, but he was looking at his disciples and saying, you are the light. And as lights were to show the way, we point to him. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he spoke these words, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I'll come get you and take you, get you so that you can always be with me where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told them, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So the business of our lives as light is to show others, to show them the way. It was a few years ago, I was late one evening, I was flying into the city of Moncton, and as the plane, I'm not a good flyer, I'm good in the air, but taking off and landing, you don't care for either one of those things. And as, as the plane was coming into the airport, well, you knew we were descending, the pilot said we were, and you could feel it, sense it, but you could see nothing. There was a cloud cover over the city, and as the plane kept descending, I was getting more and more nervous. I thought, we can't be far from the ground. What if we hit the ground? That wouldn't have been a good thing. And, and then, then we broke out of the low cloud cover. And as I looked ahead, the plane began to bank, and I could see the, the lights, the landing lights. What a welcome sight on that cloudy night. And I could see the way home. And that's what you and I are to be. We're to be like those airport lights. We show people how to get home. Jesus said, you are the light. You are the salt. You are the light. Let me close this morning by just mentioning, I want to give you two cautions. And here's the first caution. Don't overdo it. Don't shake too much salt. I remember the, wheel, meal, uh, the meal some time ago where I picked up the salt shaker and it wasn't on tight. And when I tilted it up, a whole pile of salt, and I that plate of food was ruined. It was, it was no longer any good. First Peter says about this matter of not, don't overdo it. He says, he reminds us that when we're out there acting as salt and light, that we're to do it with gentleness and respect. So don't shake too much salt and don't overdo it. Don't shine the light in their eyes. 
And again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 2, Peter's telling here in this passage, he's being specific here because he's talking to wives about how to act towards a mate, a husband who's not a believer. But hear me, because this same principle and this same practice would apply to all of us who have, and don't we all, have friends and neighbors, nephews and nieces, maybe parents, children who do not know Jesus Christ and uh, don't shine the light in their eyes. Peter writes, your godly lives will speak to them better than any words. He's not saying don't use words. He says don't overdo it. They will be won over by watching your pure godly behavior. Don't talk too much. Don't preach. Don't nag. That's what Peter's saying. That's shining the light in their eyes. And if you do that, they can't see it. You are the salt of the earth. Shake a little salt. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before those out there so they will give praise and credit to God in heaven. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord equip and enable you to be salt and light. Salt in a flat and tasteless world. Light in a dark world. You are the salt. You are the light. God bless you.